this is The Guardian. Just a warning before we start, this episode discusses frontier violence against Indigenous Australians, which can be distressing to hear. It also contains outdated references to Indigenous Australians to explain the values, politics and thinking during this period in Australia's colonial history. We'll list some support services at the end and on the full story page. Until then, please listen with care. I'm Jane Lee, coming to you from Wurundjeri Land, and this is The Full Story. For decades, journalist David Marr has asked his readers to confront difficult truths about Australia and its powerful institutions. So he was shocked when he stumbled on a photograph that revealed his own family's ugly past. The man in the photograph was posing in a chair with a sword by his side, and he was wearing the uniform of an armed force that was paid to massacre Indigenous Australians. I thought I lived in this pure, goody-goody bubble where this stuff was of deep intellectual, journalistic, moral concern to me, but it didn't... But I was no part of it. Heavens no, not people like me. And I think that's a deeply, deeply Australian response. Today, David Marr's personal reckoning with Australia's frontier wars. It's Tuesday, the 10th of October. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. So, David, growing up, what did you hear about your family history? Families have stories, but not many stories, really. And we were never a sort of a, a family-searching kind of family. And our stories were about my father's family, which they were blacksmiths from Scotland. My mother's family were doctors, but there were some strange things in my mother's family which were never truly explained. Mm. Um, and one of them was that there were these Germans there called the Ewers. But my mother never spoke about her grandmother, Maud Ewer. Mm. She was a blank. She was a a woman without stories. And my mother is long dead now. She has one brother still living. And about four years ago, he, seeing me as the journalist in the family, asked if I could dig out just something. He was just curious. He just wanted to find something out about his grandmother, Maud. Mm. So I said, yeah, sure. And... It wasn't long before I was staring at a photograph of Maud's father, Reg, Reginald Charles Hebert Ewer, in the uniform of a native policeman. Mm. And how did you feel looking at that photo for the first time? 
The English language is actually completely correct about some shocks hitting you like a blow. I was amazed. I was embarrassed. I've been writing about the undertow of race in Australian politics for over 40 years. It had never crossed my mind that my family might have had any actual connection. I've never felt guilty. That's beside the point. I mean, I never raised a gun. I never rode into a into a camp of Aboriginal sleeping, all guns blazing. I never did any of that. But in the same way that you can be very proud of the achievements of your family generations before you're born, you can also be ashamed. But I was also curious, you know. I'm a journalist. I'm a writer. I'm an explainer. I love history. And I was curious. And within half an hour of seeing that photograph, I decided that I would write about it. Mm. What was it like doing that research and documenting your own family history as a journalist? I made a decision right at the start that this was a professional project. I was not going to make any excuses for my family. And I came, therefore, to the research into them with professional detachment. Occasionally, you would just feel sick in your guts when I found myself reading detailed accounts of their killings. And both of the Ewer boys um, are survived by very detailed accounts of their killings. And that was grim. But my sense of shame started to look a bit trivial as I investigated the enormous shame of the settlement itself and of colonisation. But the family provided me this fresh way through this history. And that was, I have to say, exciting. Mm. You also set other rules for yourself in setting about writing this history, right? Because it's a very fraught, difficult time to write about as a white journalist so many years later. I only realised in the course of writing it that this had to be a white man's account of this history. I could not speak for Indigenous Australians. I couldn't speak for the descendants of the Indigenous troopers who were led by men like my great-great-grandfather and his brother. I could only speak for the white experience. Mm. And in that way, I think that the account is more authentic. It is not going places where the information is is just not there to mm. write. That information, the Indigenous response to the native police is emerging and it will emerge in time. Who were the native police and who were your ancestors within that force? All across the empire, indeed in empires long before the British Empire, there was a strategy of using conquered people led by conquering officers to conquer further people. You use the locals to kill the locals. And that was done in South Africa. It was done in Aotearoa, New Zealand. It was done in India. And it was done in Australia. What happened was that in the 1830s, the squatters were let loose. They were allowed to go out into the bush, into what were called the wastelands of the blacks. And they were always demanding protection. They wanted protection from the savages that were lurking out there. And they lobbied for this for years and years and years. And in Melbourne, there was a merchant who had lived for a time in South Africa. He was South African, in fact. 
And he knew how the system operated in South Africa of using white officers and local Aboriginal people in these colonial enforcing forces. He set up one around Port Phillip and in 1848, the governor was persuaded to expand that force and put it up into the northern reaches of what was then New South Wales became Queensland. They were called the native police, white officers, Aboriginals who were recruited for service and recruited a long way away from where they were going to kill. So the primary place for, at that time, the warriors recruited on the Murrumbidgee were much admired for their strength, their beauty. There's a lot about the beauty of the black men and their savagery. And they were then taken up to the Darling Downs, a huge distance away from where they lived, and they were used up there to fight the people of the Darling Downs. And for Aboriginal people at that time, so intense was their connection to land, to their own territory, that to go from the Murrumbidgee to the Darling Downs put them up against people who were almost as foreign to them as the white officers who led them. And so distance was a big part of it. It also made it very difficult for those troopers to desert and go home. Mm. Impossible, really. Mm. What did you find that you think would most surprise non-Indigenous Australians about this history? I was immediately reassured to discover how strong and persistent the voices were that said, this must stop. This is murder. This is theft. This must stop. This violence is unnecessary. We must deal decently with the people who we find occupying the lands that we want to put sheep onto. It doesn't have to be so bloody. Mm. And those voices were there from the start and continued all through the 19th century. The established church was useless, throw that away. Um, the bishops of the Church of England simply found reasons for land being taken. Um, they were appalling. There were some missionaries who were terrific. But the people who emerge best in the century are the journalists, the journalists, the editors and the writers who kept up a strong commentary saying, this is barbaric, this must stop. And what that does for a contemporary historian is get rid of the idea that people were different then. Because if people were different then, how on earth do you write about them? The times were different. The people weren't. There were dreadful people. There were greedy and cruel and bloodthirsty people. And there were good people. And human beings just don't change. They just respond to the times, but they don't change. And that's immensely reassuring for a writer. You know what you're dealing with. You're dealing with the human beings you know in a different and complex time. Mm, in a different political context, in a different... Economic context, um, in a country which is set on a mission of colonisation. Um, all of these things affect the way people behave and think about their behaviour. But the fundamentals don't change. Murder is still murder. Mm. And tell me a little bit about your ancestors, the Ewer brothers. The native police were set up in 1848. At that time, the Ewers were sort of squatters and business people in and around Brisbane and Maryborough. Then the next generation of kids came along. They were not wealthy, but they did have very good political connections. Jobs as officers in the native police were much sought after. And the one absolute requirement 
was not, say, bush skills or knowledge of Aboriginal languages or anything like that. The only requirement was certain social standing. I mean, only gentlemen could be trusted to lead murdering bands of Aboriginal troopers. And the Ewer brothers were able just to claim some kind of gentlemanly status. And they were both given jobs with the native police. Right. So the native police were regarded quite well among settlers because they had to have some status in order to join. Well, the, the attitude of the settlers to the native police is a terribly interesting thing. It was really that these were government jobs. Everybody wanted a government job and <laughs> it was a sinecure. And so people fought to get their kids into the native police because they paid a couple of hundred pounds a year. Mm. And the attitude of the squatters was so interesting because... Some of the squatters, most of the squatters perhaps, demanded protection, demanded the native police, wanted them around. But there were other squatters who said they make the violence on the frontier worse, they kill the people working for us, they are a curse. And there was always a political struggle between the squatters who loved them, wanted them, and the squatters who despised them and wanted them gone. But the squatters who wanted them ruled the roost in what became Queensland. Mm. And... Aboriginal troops who joined the native police joined in very different circumstances, didn't they? There is no surviving account of the reasons for any of the thousand or so Aboriginal men who served with the native police. No account of why they did it. There is clear evidence later on that men were kidnapped for service in the native police. It was also possible in Queensland for Aboriginal prisoners to serve their time with the native police. But there is no escaping the reality that a large number of men very willingly volunteered for service with the police. These were men who were living in a broken society, broken by colonisation, whose lands and rivers were overrun by sheep, whose future was most uncertain. And service with the native police offered a few things that young men of any um, background admired. One was a uniform, another was a horse, another was access to women, and another was food. They got an enormous amount of food every day. They got over a kilo of meat every day, plus, you know, other supplies. And it was a life of certainty in very uncertain times. And what specifically was the remit of the native police? When you ask about the remit, you've got to distinguish between the rhetoric and the reality. In the rhetoric, they were there to protect not only the squatters, but the Aboriginal people themselves from vindictive squatters. That was bullshit. They were there to enforce peace on the frontier. Again, bullshit. What they were there to do was to continuously, as they used to say, teach the blacks a lesson, to prevent the Aboriginal people whose lands were being invaded from spearing the stock, from killing shepherds. A lot of shepherds died on the frontier. Remember, this is a world before wire. There are no paddocks. All of the flocks are cared for by shepherds. They were very vulnerable people. Um, and many of them died in frontier conflicts. And the role of the native police was to go out after a death, a spearing, and kill 
as many blacks as they could find. There was no provision for taking prisoners. There was very, very rarely was anybody taken prisoner and returned and and brought in for trial. Never. They were dealt with in the bush. The squatters despised the courts because the courts asked difficult questions like, what is the proof that this man standing in the dock actually committed that crime? In the squatters' imaginations, personal responsibility for a crime was irrelevant. Those people were responsible for that crime. So if the courts weren't going to cooperate with you, you just killed in the bush, and that's what happened. Mm. And the role of the native police was just to sweep through all of that, to kill and to teach lessons and to bring peace through violence. Mm. Who benefited the most from this violence? Oh, the squatters. The squatters. Because they were moving out into country which, you know, was possessed, was occupied, was owned. They were taking sheep and cattle into that country, which destroyed not only the grasslands, but also the rivers, and therefore destroyed the sources of food of the Aboriginal people. And it was all about the acreage. And so the first governor of Queensland, George Bowen, celebrated in speeches that could be set to music, the beauties of colonisation and how You know, every year the frontier extended another 200 miles deeper into the bush. What this did to the people living there was not celebrated in his speeches, Mm. but the squatters benefited. And because wool and squatting were the only source of income for the new state of Queensland, the state benefited. Until gold was discovered in Queensland, the expansion of the frontier was the only real source of wealth in that colony. David, you write that scholars have estimated the native police killed more than 40,000 Indigenous Australians, and both your relatives were involved in large-scale massacres as officers of this organisation. What happened? Englishmen who had made their fortunes in Australia tended to go back home and write their memoirs. These memoirs are not always reliable. The general rule amongst historians is don't believe it unless the writer of the memoir said, I was an eyewitness. But this man was an eyewitness, and he was an eyewitness to an operation in which Reg Ewer pursued a party of blacks, this was after the death of a couple of shepherds, slaughtered them, and then sat around boiling the billy and having a meal amongst the bodies with the women of the tribe standing at a distance, bereft, but just it is the most appalling scene, vividly described by an eyewitness. I'm also incredibly lucky that despite the destruction of nearly all of the native police records, well, there is a little fragment in which my great-great-grandfather reports killing six people that day. The squatter who wrote the memoir said it was a dozen, but Reg says it was six. Uh, he was commended for it and he was shortly afterwards promoted. Darcy up in the Gulf killed on a much greater scale and one of the newspapers up there, very, very unusual newspaper report, actually gives the death count of individual actions where over a few days Darcy and his troopers killed 59. And those reports we discovered were all republished across Britain. It was not only not a secret in Australia, it was not a secret in Britain. 
And they were reported under headlines either deploring or approving that action. Darcy was an ungovernable rogue and he was forced out of the native police. And he then became a drover whose brutality to Aborigines was a commercial asset to him. And he continued to kill on his droving missions. He later became a miner and he killed during um, his time on goldfields. He ended his days as a butcher, which seems to me to be absolutely appropriate. Hmm. Well, I mean, as you say, neither of your relatives were punished. Instead, they laid claim to it and were venerated, even Reg even became a magistrate. I think venerated would be pushing it, but but they were rewarded. Yeah, venerated might be, but rewarded. Rewarded, and, yeah. And not punished. And not punished, no. And what do you make of that? Well, this was... They were doing the work that the colony of Queensland expected. It, it did help Darcy that at a particularly low point in his career in the native police, his cousin married the Premier of Queensland. That always helps. And at a time when the police commissioner was wanting, really wanting to chuck him out of the force, Darcy was instead promoted. But uh, not only were their killings unpunished, so were their kidnappings. The kidnapping of children was never punished in Queensland and it was continuously carried out. After a massacre, the troopers frequently took women for themselves and the officers took children. And those children were given or sold to friends and, or, or, you know, around the town. The boys became servants and worse to local people. The girls became domestic servants and worse to families. They were not paid. It was slavery. It was never punished. There was an attempt to punish Darcy. There was a man who was so appalled by what Darcy had done that he actually gathered some witnesses and offered these witnesses and himself as a witness to the Attorney General of Queensland saying, prosecute this man for what he's done. No. And the failure to prosecute Darcy was the template for the failure to prosecute anybody for the rest of the century in Queensland mm. for kidnapping. How long did the native police operate for? Well, they did themselves out of a job over time because as the frontier moved west and north, they were needed less and less. And so in the 1880s and 1890s, many of the native police units joined the traditional police. Troopers came to be renamed trackers, but they still operated as native police in the Gulf and on Cape York. So at the northwestern and northern extremities of Queensland, where the frontier was still a frontier, they continued to operate essentially until the First World War. <laughs> there was one native police camp, still called a native police camp, on the Cohen Goldfields on Cape York until 1929. Wow. Next, what can Australia's history tell us about today? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. 
Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. As you've mentioned, not everyone was supportive of the native police at the time. You write that newspapers of the time, as well as missionaries and some squatters, denounced them as murderers and pushed for this group to end. Why do you think that didn't work? It didn't work because of the power of money. Um, Australia is no stranger to the power of money. And, um, uh, you know, what coal miners can get away with today, not that I accuse them for a moment of murder, but what coal miners can get away with today, which is not not decent or not in the public interest, squatters could get away with back then. They also had very strong connections in London because the wool trade did not only profit the individual squatters and the individual colonies, but it profited industry in Britain as well. And it also profited the financial London world as well. There was a small world of people in whose interest it was to empty Australia of its Aboriginal people and fill Australia with sheep and cattle. And their political clout far outweighed the clout of those decent voices who kept saying what you're doing is wrong. Well, you spent the last few years immersed in the history of the Native Police and this time in Australia. We're now days away from a referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. How does your research into this period influence the way you see the current debate playing out? I didn't write this for the referendum. It's a, it's a coincidence that it's coming out now. And I think it's a much, much better book for taking four and a half years. And Yes, there are only a few days to the referendum. One of the things is that I just, I would hope that my book is another of the many books that have been written that just might convince people that we live in a conquered country, Mm. that Australian history is not cook, convicts, sheep, gold, Gallipoli. It is the history of a conquest Because if we can grasp that, then we can grasp also our decent obligations to those people who once controlled this country. And then I would hope that it is a way of of saying not the utopian notion that Australia should never have been colonised. It's a ridiculous basis for argument. Australia was going to be colonised but that it didn't have to be done so brutally. Really, the most brutal colonisation of the British in the 19th century was the colonisation of Australia. And for those voices, Indigenous and white, who say that, you know, in the long run it's been all for the best, I just say, are you for real? You know, read, read your history Be curious, read your history, know what your country is because there's blood everywhere. And I look on 
the no case as another round of the frontier wars, apart from anything, the rhetoric is so familiar. I mean, of course, no one is now saying people should go out and kill anybody. But the rhetoric that justified the treatment of Aboriginal people on the frontier is still alive in the no case. Firstly, of course, the notion that we're wasting gigantic sums of money on the Aborigines and that, and that all of this money um, is, is, is just, you know, being thrown away and vast sums, et cetera, et cetera. That was an argument on the frontier and it was an argument when, when almost nothing was being spent on the Indigenous people of this country. It's just all of this is so familiar. They attacked elites, they attacked city people, they attacked virtue signalers, they attacked money wasted on the Indigenous. The rhetoric was slightly different, but the arguments are the same being used today in the no case. This is all familiar. It's as old as white Australia, these arguments, and just as cruel. Mm. I guess I ask you these questions because you've written about race and politics in this country for so long. Why do you think we're still grappling and reckoning with the impact that colonisation has had so many years on in exactly this way? There is a constituency in this country, a political constituency, for those who fear and despise Aborigines. It's there. It's been used by Pauline Hanson. It was used very, very cleverly by John Howard. It's there. If you want to exploit it instead of contesting it, you can. There are the numbers there to exploit. I've heard recently of polls that suggest something like 30% of Australians believe that no harm came to the Indigenous people in the course of colonisation. The lie about Australia's history is still firmly believed by a large number of Australians. It's a very, very cunningly, carefully concocted lie. I didn't write this book as an argument for the yes case. I wrote this book as a way of taking more people into the truth of Australia's history. And it is going to take time. I mean, at last, people are being, at school, kids are being taught something of this history. It will take time. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of what you said at the start of this conversation, that the times change but the people don't. Well, people don't and in some deeply troubling ways, the times don't much either because it's all so familiar. You read the newspapers of the 1830s and you read the press today and you see the bones of the same arguments, the same reason to despise and dismiss the Indigenous people, the same reason to give them nothing. You've looked squarely at your own family's history some generations back. Do you emerge from this different as well? I haven't felt really the same about myself, let alone the country, um, from the moment of the discovery of that photograph and seeing my great-grandfather. I mean, it was just a reality blast. You know, I thought I lived in this pure, goody-goody bubble where this stuff was of deep 
intellectual, journalistic, moral concern to me, but it didn't, but I was no part of it. Heavens no, not people like me. And I think that's a deeply, deeply Australian response. And I think, you know, I'm not claiming any heroism whatever for exposing the role of my family, none. What else could I do as a writer, as a journalist, as somebody who's been asking the country to face its past for for decades i've been i've been arguing that and i found this and i had to follow where it led and it was not to be a participant in the referendum debate but a but a way of telling the truth of the past in a new way that i hope might attract new readers and new understanding That was David Marr. He's the author of Killing for Country, published by Black Ink. You can find an extract from David's book at theguardian.com. I'll post a link to that on the Full Story website. If listening to this episode has affected you, a crisis support line for Indigenous Australians is available on 13 YARN, which is 139276. You can also call Lifeline on 13 11 14. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Daniel Simo and James Milsom, who also did the sound design and mixing. The executive producers were Miles Martignoni and Hannah Parks. Please remember to follow or subscribe to Full Story wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps us find new listeners. I'm Jane Lee. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice, new research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centred higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.